Good morning. Before we jump into our Bible study this morning together, I just want to personally invite any young married couples that might be here with us in the service or maybe listening to uh, this uh, later on in uh, online. Uh, we're going to be starting a young married couples grace group on Sunday nights, and here's how Sunday nights work for anybody. Maybe you've not been to Sunday night grace groups. We've got five groups that meet, and the main focus of the five main groups uh, they, uh, I guess, dial down a little bit more into the text. They look for a little bit more practical application of the things that we talk about on Sunday morning. Um, and they do all the other things that grace groups do. They pray together and, and encourage one another as well. This particular grace group, uh, we're going to be focusing on specifically how do we strengthen our marriage and where do we find good wisdom for parenting, and I'm going to be leading that group. Uh, so if you're interested in e either of the five groups that we have or, or that particular grace group, just come. You don't need to sign up for anything. Just come. Uh, we're going to hang out in the lobby for a little bit, uh, time of connection, around 610. Then we'll announce it's time to go to your groups. And if you've never been to one, don't worry. We'll make sure you get where you need to go. Uh, we'd love to have you come and be part of, of that. So just a quick plug for what we're doing uh, tonight and all the different grace groups that you heard Pastor Tim mention. Hope you, if you're not in one, plug yourself in. Uh, take a risk, plug yourself in. If we can help in any way, find a good grace group for you, let us know. We'd love to help you. This morning, we are returning back to our major study on the minor prophets. And just as a reminder, there are 12 minor prophets in Scripture, and they are not like minor league baseball players hoping to make it to the big leagues one day. That's not what it means to be a minor prophet. It simply means that they group together these 12 legit prophets together in a group with the category of minor prophet only because their books are much shorter than the category of prophets that we consider major prophets like uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Isaiah. These are long books, and some of the, the minor prophets are a couple chapters long. So that's the reason for the, the categorization of uh, major versus minor prophet. And if you remember, if you were with us this year, we've already studied Joel. We've already studied Amos this, this year. Uh, in recent years, it hasn't been that long ago, I did a study on Habakkuk. Some of you were around for that. We did a study on Haggai. Some of you may remember that one. And today we are beginning our study of Jonah. When, when you first hear the name Jonah, um, in connection with the Bible I mean, uh, I don't mean your nephew or some kid you know named Jonah. When you hear, when you hear the name Jonah, What's the first thing that comes to mind with the, the, the story of Jonah in the Bible? Yeah, sure, the big fish uh, is, is what comes to most people's minds when they hear Jonah's name in connection with God's Word. Oftentimes, the first conversation people want to have about the story of Jonah is whether or not the part of his story about the big fish, is it true, is it not true? Did it, did it really happen? Did this miracle 
uh, of him being swallowed by a big fish and surviving that and, and getting vomited onto the, the, the land. Did that really happen or, or not? The book of Jonah is presented, when you read it, it's presented as a historical narrative, as a true story. And yet some people want to, to treat Jonah, this book in the Bible, as an allegory. It didn't really happen. It just has, it's a, it's a made-up story with a made-up uh, guy named Jonah, and there's some uh, meaning in it that we can pull out and hopefully apply to our lives. That's how some people want to treat the book of Jonah because they have a hard time. It's not written that way. It's not written uh, in the style of an allegory at all. It's written as a historical narrative. But the reason why some people struggle to treat it that way and would rather treat it as an allegory really comes down to uh, some people have a hard time believing in the miracle of the big fish part of his story, even though that's you know, one part, one minor part of, of the entire book. Now, we are going to address that issue later on in the series in more detail, but I think it's important that we set the record straight right up front. Why? Well, because if we're going to dive into the book of Jonah, and I'm going to present it to you as as a true story, uh, then I think we need to at least give you a, a, a little bit of reason why, uh, why I believe that it should be treated as such and not as, as an allegory, not as like a, a, a fabled uh, fairy tale like Disney's Pinocchio. You know that story, the, you know, the, the puppet gets swallowed by a whale because he's this rebellious little puppet or whatever. That's not what Jonah is. And like I said, we're going to spend more time with that issue when we get to that part of the story. But for now, here's what I want you to consider. I want you to consider the fact that Jesus, you've heard of him, right? Jesus, Jesus believed that the story of Jonah was true, that it is a, he, he treated the, the story of Jonah as historical narrative as something that actually happened. If you look at, at Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, if this is something you struggle with, this I think is a, a great place to begin your investigation over whether or not the, this, uh, the story of Jonah is, is history or is it allegory. Well, Jesus certainly treated it as history. So Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, you got these teachers of religious law, these Pharisees, they came to Jesus and they said, teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign and prove your authority, prove who you are. Now, first of all, Jesus had already been doing miracles for quite some time. It's not like he hasn't already demonstrated his divine power, but they, they, want, they want more. They, they continue to reject uh, Jesus as the Messiah, and, and Jesus knows this, uh, and so he responds this way. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. So Jesus addresses Jonah or describes Jonah as a real person, a real prophet. And then he says this, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, 
be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Is the resurrection of Jesus a literal miracle or not? I believe that the resurrection of Jesus is that his death and burial and resurrection are literally true, that it's a miracle. And Jesus here is saying he's using uh, the story of Jonah, an event that actually happened, as a way to illustrate the the miracle of of Jonah in the big fish is similar in in the sense uh, that it was three days and three nights like Jonah experienced that Jesus will experience in this particular case in the earth, uh, in, in, uh, in the tomb for three days. Uh, so if you believe in the miracle of, of Jesus and his resurrection three days after his death on the cross, then the story of Jonah, that part of his story is not going to be hard for you. You're going to be able to accept it as intended, as written, as a historical account of a real man named Jonah. If you struggle with believing in miracles, then, then yeah, you're going to struggle with this story. Uh, hopefully, uh, by the time we get through the book, especially when we get to that part, I'll be able to bring out a, a few more things, uh, evidence that we should accept it as, as written, as true, as a miracle, okay? Jonah chapter one. Would you go there with me? Join me in Jonah chapter one. We're only going to get into three verses this morning. That's all the farther we're going to go. We're going to take our time and work through this story. There's a lot of amazing things in the book of Jonah. But let's meet him in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. So when we first meet Jonah, actually it's not here. We first meet him in 2 Kings. Uh, In 2 Kings chapter 14, we find out that Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was alive. He was a prophet of God, same time as uh, Joel, same time as Amos. These guys all lived at the same time. They were prophets of God at the same time. So if you remember our study from Joel, our study from Amos, you'll remember that that particular time in history uh, of Israel They were expanding. Israel was expanding its borders. They were experiencing prosperity. At the same time, though, they were in this rapid moral decay. The people were walking away from God. They were worshiping pagan idols. And we covered a lot of really interesting history in our study of Joel, our study of Amos, that helps explain why that was happening and uh, how they got to that place. So if you, if you missed any of those, they're all on the website. Just go to the playlist on our website. You can go back and, and review those sermons. I'm not going to spend much time reviewing that, number one, because we've already done it, and you have easy access to that information, but also because that's not who God called Jonah to go and prophesy to. Uh, God, God called Jonah somewhere else. If you go to verse 2, so we, this message that, that God gives to Jonah is this, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. So God is sending Jonah not to northern Israel, but rather to Nineveh. And here's the message, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. So God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach against it. 
That's the instruction. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It should not be hard to preach against a city that apparently is so wicked that God was like, you know, there's a lot of wicked, evil things going on, including in Israel. But God was like, all right, enough is enough. Enough is enough. This, this, and Nineveh, this can't continue. Jonah, you're going to need to go and preach against Nineveh. I'm going to destroy that place. And you might wonder, what? what is going on in Nineveh that is so bad that God would send one of his prophets to put them on notice? Well, here's what you need to know about Nineveh, just some basic historical information. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and the Assyrians were quite proud of how cruel they could be, especially when it came time to uh, torturing not just capturing, not just killing people on the battlefield. No, they, they weren't satisfied with that. They, they enjoyed, they were proud of how they would torture people. And not just soldiers in military conflict, innocent people, uh, children. They had no problem uh, wiping out families. And I'm not going to get into s- some of the details and some of the things that they did Because if I were to describe in detail some of the things the Assyrians did to their enemies, this sermon would go very quickly from PG to R. It's that bad. And so here's what I'll I'll say. If you have any any understanding of the modern-day cartels and the things that they do to people to other human beings, if you've seen any of that uh, in, in the news and some of the just unbelievably cruel things that they are willing to do to other human beings, if you have seen those things or have an awareness of them, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. It's just, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around how a human being could do some of these things to other human beings. And, and, and their, their motive is the same as what modern-day cartels. The, the, the ancient motive of the ancient Assyrians was the same. It was to invoke fear into their enemies. And that was the Assyrians. And at that particular time in history, the Assyrians were the Israelites' number one enemy. Tomorrow, I want you to just think about Jonah's reaction here. Uh, he gets this message from God, go to Nineveh, and we're about to see what he, do- what he does in, in verse 3 with, with this calling of God on his life. But before we do, just I want you to think about in that moment, getting that call from God, go to Nineveh, Jonah. So you and, and me are like, oh, Nineveh, fine, let's go, let's, whatever. Tomorrow's 9-11. It's the anniversary of 20 plus years when Al-Qaeda attacked our, our country. And for those of us who were alive, those of us who, who lived through that and witnessed it in real time, the answer to this question is probably going to be uh, a little more difficult than maybe younger people who didn't live through it. But if this, if this was you, the Lord gave this message to you fill in your name, to Mark, to your name. Here's the message. Get up and go to Afghanistan, Iraq. Go to Al-Qaeda and, 
and, and preach against them. Would you hesitate? I mean, just be honest. Uh, probably. For a, a number of reasons, right? How about this one? If, if it was this, if, if God said this word of the Lord came to fill in, in your name, and the message was, go to Mexico and preach against the drug cartels. Would you, would you hesitate? I think it's okay to be honest about that. Uh, that yeah, I, I, think I, would, I think I would take a minute. Look at how Jonah responds. Now keep in mind, he's a prophet of God. His response to this call, the Lord gave a message to Jonah, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh. Great not because it's a, a great place, great because it's big. We already know that it's wicked. It's so wicked that God is going to bring judgment against it. That's the message. And Jonah gets this message from God in verse 3, but Jonah got up. Okay, we're good so far, right? <laughs> he got up, he did that part. And went the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of, of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish, bought a ticket, went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Jo Jonah literally went in the opposite direction of Nineveh, bought a one-way ticket to the farthest known place you could possibly go in that day from Nineveh. He went to Spain. 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. The word of the Lord came to you, fill in your name, and said, go to, here we are in Pennsylvania, what are we, two and a half hours from D.C., right? By car. The word of the Lord came to fill in your name. Go to Washington, D.C. Get up. Go to Washington, D.C. and preach against its wickedness. Now, I know there's no wickedness in Washington, D.C. to preach against, so that probably doesn't make sense to you, but just imagine it's a wicked place, and God told you, told me to go there and preach against it, and instead... We got on a plane, we got on a train, we got in our car, and we went to one of the west coast, what is that, 20, that's 2,500 miles, right? Something like that across the, the country. To one of the west, the farthest west you could possibly get from Washington, D.C. That's what Jonah did. Why did he do that? I think the immediate possibility that we would consider is fear. Because when, when I asked you, would you go to the drug cartel? When I asked you, would you go over to Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever Al-Qaeda might be? Uh, would you go and, and do that? Probably your no, your hesitation, the first part of that would be fear, I would think. These are clearly dangerous people, and you want me to go and speak against them? What do you think is going to happen to me? And so I think our immediate assumption is the reason why Jonah goes in the opposite direction 
is maybe because of fear. He was afraid. Yeah, I'm going to go to Nineveh. These people do terrible things to their enemies. That's going to be a 30-second speech, and I'll be dead. I'm going to leave the why a, a mystery for right now. We'll get to the why, but it's not fear. It's not what you would assume. And we're, I, I think I can demonstrate that when we get into the next part of his story, that, that Jonah's not a fearful man, not afraid to die. And we'll leave the why a mystery for right now on purpose. Number one, I want you to keep coming back, right? As we unfold the story, uh, I want you to keep coming back to hear the rest of the story. But also because the why, can I just be brutally honest? The why doesn't matter. The why doesn't matter. This morning, I want us to focus on the fact that Jonah, a prophet of God, refused to do what God told him to do. He turned in essentially, turned in his resignation letter when he bought his ticket to Tarshish. I'm out. Nope, not doing that. And he had his reason why. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, but it doesn't matter. Jonah chose to run away from God's will, and at this point in the story, I can't help but wonder, how did Jonah think this was going to turn out? He's a prophet of God. He's not stupid. He's not unaware. He's not ignorant of the sovereignty of God. He's not ignorant of the omniscience of God. Jonah doesn't think, hey, if, if I go to Spain, God can't find me in Spain. Because like Spain, everyone knows that Spain is invisible to God. You can't, God can't see me if I go to Spain. I'll be able to hide from him there. That's not what Jonah thought. He's not stupid. He's not ignorant of who God is and the omniscience of God. He knows he can't hide from God. There's nowhere on the planet that Jonah could have gone that God could not have found him or known where he was. So what's he thinking? I wonder where he expected this trip in the opposite direction from God's will to end up. I mean, did, did he at, at one point in, in, in thinking about what, because he put a lot of thought into this, right? He, he traveled to Joppa, bought a ticket, got on the, he put a lot of thought into this. So was he thinking, you know what? I'm sure God will be totally fine with my blatant disobedience. God will be fine with that. I'm sure he's got other prophets that can do it. I mean, Amos seems like a, a, a nice guy. Uh, he seems pretty bold, maybe a little obnoxious, but maybe that's what God needs. Maybe Amos would be a better choice, Lord. God will probably just send him if I hop on this boat to Spain. I'm pretty sure God will be fine with my early retirement plan. In fact, he'll probably just bless me greatly. I, I don't know what the, the, the thought process was with Jonah and how he got to the conclusion of what he was going to do. 
But I wonder if he th thought through how this was going to end. And I want us to, we're going to stop there. That's all the farther we're going to go in the text today because I want us to consider the question, if we choose to run away from God's will, where do we expect to end up? If you or I choose to ignore, disobey, run in the opposite direction from God's will for your life, for my life, where is it exactly that we expect that will lead? Where are we going to end up? And I understand this about human nature. You hear that question, and most of us, our immediate response is, you haven't heard my why. Wait a minute, time out. You need to hear my why. I've got a really good reason why. God's will is super scary. Yes, I, I, I've, I've read the passages that talk about God's expectation, God's will for me is to share my faith, to share the story of Jesus and what Jesus has done in my life with other people. I know it's there, but that's super scary. Living a Jesus-centered life at my school, living a Jesus-centered life and, and, and living under the a surrendered life to Christ where I work, that's super scary. People are going to make fun of me. They're going to give me a hard time. They're going to call me uh, these mean names. That's scary. All right. But if you run away from God's will, where do you expect to end up? Where's that road going to lead? And sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it has nothing to do with fear. Sometimes the why is just simply, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to do what God's will demands of me. I don't want to forgive the person who hurt me. Let me tell you why. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve grace. I don't want to. Yeah, I, I've, I've read the verses. There's a ton of them in here that says, if I don't forgive others, that God won't forgive me. I don't care. I don't want to. Sometimes it's, I, I, I don't want to stop my sinful behavior. I don't care. If God defines, and he does in his word, defines any sexual action outside of marriage between a man and a woman, God defines that as sin. It's clear from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. It doesn't change. And yet you'll have people that will say, I don't care. I want to fulfill my desires I don't really want to build my, my marriage around God's principles. I've got my own way of doing life. I'm going to do what feels right. Okay, where do you expect, if you run away from God's will, if you run away from, from God's standards, where exactly do you expect to end up? You could fill in the blank with anything you want as far as the why. Fill in the blank of why you are running away from God's will with anything you want. And of course, it's going to sound reasonable. Why? Because the only person you have to convince is yourself. And that's not hard to do, is it? 
I can convince myself. I can give myself a reason. I can give myself an excuse. And here it is. Oh, that sounds very reasonable, Mark. Yes, I, I'm on board, totally on board with that reason. Wasn't hard to convince myself. You can, you can fill in the blank of why with anything you want. But our why doesn't change the fact that disobedience to God's will is still disobedience to God. It doesn't matter why. How do we expect God to respond? And I'm asking just honestly to think about how do you expect God to respond to our disobedience? Like, what do you, what, what's your expectation of God in that situation? What, what, how do we expect God to respond to our apathy? I don't care. What, okay, how do you expect God to respond to that? Ignoring God, disobeying God, not caring about God's will for your life. Do we expect God to say, oh, no, no big deal? In fact, now that I've heard your why, I'm on board. Do we expect God to say, you know what? Actually, you make a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I thought I knew what was best, but clearly, Mark, you know what's best. Thank you for pointing it out to me. Is, honestly, is that what our expectation of God is? Sometimes we act that way. Actually, I think there's a, I'm pretty sure there's a verse in Isaiah that says something along the lines of um, where God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My ways are always better than your ways. I'm pretty sure that's what scripture teaches, but sometimes we ignore that and think we know better than God. So what do we expect God to do? Ignore it? Do we, how about this? Do we expect God to bless us in our disobedience? Do we expect God to cheer us on in our sinful choices? I'm going to ignore God. I'm going to disobey God. I'm sure God's going to be, yay, good job. So proud of you. Is he going to shower us with his peace? Do we expect God to shower us with his joy, with his contentment while we are ignoring him and running away from him? Where do, where do we see this road of disobedience ending up? Do we really expect to end up in the promised land of God's blessing? Did, did Jonah expect that by disobeying God that he was just going to end up you know, on, on, in, a, in a beach chair in Spain and, and, and God's totally fine with it? Is that, I wonder if that was his expectation. Now, spoiler alert, next week the story is going to continue and Jonah's attempt to run away from God and his will does in fact not end up with him sitting on a beach chair in southern Spain enjoying his early retirement. That is not where the story is going, in case you were wondering. But here's something I also want to kind of be a, have a spoiler on and it's this but God also pursues Jonah we're also going to see that God doesn't ignore it but God also pursues Jonah we're going to watch God pursue Jonah but to today's point at some point 
As we watch the story unfold, we'll see how God reacts. We'll see how God responds. At some point, Jonah's going to have to stop running. At some point, Jonah is going to have to stop running away from God's will. And I just want us to be honest and humble this morning. Is that possibly true of your heart today? I know it was true of my heart when I was a young man. Absolutely, it was true. Uh, there was a point in, in my life as a young man that, that my heart's desire uh, didn't go any farther than a pursuit of, of wealth and prestige. That's, that's what motivated me. That's what was drawing me towards a particular career path. And I said no to God's will for my life for quite a while. In the if you could put it this way, the opposite. Is a lawyer the opposite of pastor? I don't know. Maybe not. They're not super close. So I, 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 I have been there. Looking back now, though, here, here's what I can say. Looking back now, I am confident. Obviously, I wouldn't be here. But I am absolutely confident that I, if I had not stopped running from God's will in my life, I am confident that I would not have run in, I would not have found myself, I would not have ended up in the promised land of God's blessing. That's a nice way to put it. I would have made a mess of my life. I'm confident of that. And so I just ask you to consider the same question. Have you been running away from God's will? And if the answer to that question is yes, in, in, in whatever uh, that is, I want to follow it up with, it doesn't matter why. Because I know that's the tendency. The tendency is to say yes, but here's my why. It doesn't matter why. It matters. What, what matters is when you run away from God's will, you are running away from God's blessing. You are running away from God's peace. You are running away from God's joy. You are running away from the contentment that God wants to pour into your life. You are running away from God's absolute best for your life. Where do you expect a life of running away from God to end up? So stop running. Stop running away from God's will for your life today, right now. And if, if you can relate to Jonah's story in some way, if it sounds a lot like your story right now, stop running, repent, come back. And if you are hesitant in that because you're thinking, well, okay, fine, I'll stop running, but does God really want me back? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure if God wants me back. Listen to the words of Jesus. These are not Pastor Mark's words. These are the words of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, he's recorded as saying this, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, one out of a hundred wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than the 99 that did not wander away. Jesus said that. 
Jesus will pursue your heart because he loves you. But at some point, you have to stop running. At some point, you have to make the choice to trust Jesus Christ as your forgiver of sin to make you spiritually right with God. At some point, you have to stop running and surrender your life, every part of it, not just your Sunday morning, every area of your life. Surrender your whole self to him. Anything short of that is, is a choice to ignore, disobey, walk in the opposite direction of God's will. And where exactly do we expect to end up if that's the pattern of life that we want to live? Stop. Repent. Come back. Lord, I thank you for these few moments that we've been able to share together this morning, and I thank you for preserving for us the story of Jonah. I pray that as we study it, I I pray that as we read it together and and learn from it, that your Holy Spirit would would be our teacher, would be our guide, would be the one that your Spirit would would, uh, challenge us in in areas that perhaps we need to change or, or perhaps our thinking needs to change. Um, that you would encourage us. Lord, I, I think about your, your love and how you pursue us even, even when we are stubborn and even when we demand our own way at times that you still pursue us because you love us. I, I, I find that to be very encouraging. So I just pray that, that we would be encouraged as we read the book, that we'd be challenged as we read the book together uh, and that your Holy Spirit uh, who knows us better than we know ourselves, uh, would, would help each one of us hear from you uh, what we need to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.